Today's reading is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. So at about 1184 B.C., give or take a few years, an amazing event happened in history. It's a uh, myth that legends are made of and um, historians debate. But here's the story. There had been a 10-year war between Greece, a remarkable empire, and another place called Troy, a well-fortified city. And for 10 years, the Greeks tried to overcome the city of Troy. At the end of 10 years, it seemed there was no way to win. So they came up with a plan. They built a large wooden horse. They put it just outside the city walls on a pedestal with wheels. And then the entire army left the premises, got into their ships, and sailed away. The people inside the city of Troy looked at it with a certain amount of amusement, but also curiosity. Perhaps it was a gift from the gods. Maybe it was a sacrifice to the gods. Maybe it was a peace offering. But whatever it was, they decided to bring it inside their city because the threat was gone. They pulled the massive horse inside the city, and you know what happens. Some special forces that were inside that gigantic wooden horse in the middle of the night when all was quiet opened a hatch and made their way to the walls of the city and opened them from the inside out. Greek soldiers who had never been able to penetrate the wall now open the gates. Oh, the other part of the story. In the middle of the night, the Greeks who had just gone over the horizon in their ships turned and came back to shore with their armies and went through the city gates that were open for them and destroyed the city of Troy. A remarkable story. Later, 
A very small, inconspicuous, perhaps hunched-backed man who had kind of a raspy voice entered the great city of Corinth in the Roman Empire. This place was a massive city. It was on the straits of the Isthmus. It was a commercially prosperous city. And an immoral city. It was a place that the Roman Empire saw as one of its crown jewels. In that city, athletics were at the top of the tier. People loved the Isthmus Games, sort of like the Olympics ga- Olympic Games on a smaller scale. And right at the center of their culture was a statue and a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. The goddess of love translate complete, unadulterated sexuality. And in that temple, temple prostitution was not only legalized, it was embraced in such a way that you could make your way higher and higher spiritually by engaging in temple prostitution. A remarkable city, a very corrupt city. You might have filled in the gaps, the small, little, unassuming man who entered Corinth was named Paul, the Apostle Paul. Now we think of it as a grand thing. Now we think of it as the church. Now we think of it as something that really is powerful. Now we think of it as a person who is read more than any other person in the world. More people have read the Apostle Paul than any other piece of literature. But back then, he was going into a gigantic city with a tiny minority of a house church in Corinth. I ask you, what possible influence could Paul have in that context? And I answer my own question. His influence was to plant a seed that would change the world. And the seed of wisdom was called the wisdom of Christ crucified. Paul says to the people when he arrives and tells them about this and then leaves and writes them this letter, he says, when I was among you and as I send this letter, I'm sending this letter to a culture that you're living in. And here's your culture. You know it well because I encountered it first when I came to you. Your culture is, has got lots of philosophy teachers. They're the wise men. And when I proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ crucified and Christ's resurrection, they scoff at it. They think it's absolute nonsense and pure foolishness. Why? Well, it's real simple. Because if you were a Greek, you would have inherited this this lofty tradition concerning the gods. It came to you from Homer. And Homer described the gods as enormously powerful and vindictive towards one another and capricious and apathetic to human beings. They had no use for human beings except to use them, including, according to Homer and other Greek writers, use them sexually. 
And into that context, Paul says, I speak the word of truth concerning the gospel, and they say, pish posh. That's nonsense. Why? Because God is apathetic if he is in existence at all. We know about the gods, and if we embrace the gods, what we realize is we're embracing powerful, capricious gods out there who are unaffected by us and care little about us. Oh, we appeal to them. But really? You're telling me your God is human? You're telling me that your God is affected by my emotions? Paul says, yes. I'll tell you what, the foolishness of the cross is this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the incarnate one of God, came into this world and suffered just like we suffer, walked through every circumstance that we walk through, and eventually died for us, and then was raised again for our salvation. That's the wisdom of God. That's it in a nutshell. And they said it's nonsense. There's another category of people that he spoke with. It was the so-called teachers of the law. And by that, apparently he meant the religious leaders. At that time, like him, Jewish religious leaders. Paul himself, a rabbi, was teaching and preaching to people who also had that tradition. And they looked at him and they said, your message concerning the cross Well, just like the Greeks, we think it's kind of stupid. But more importantly, your message concerning the cross, we find to be scandalous, outrageous, denigrating of God himself. We look for the Messiah, and the Messiah cannot die. We look for the Messiah, the one who triumphs over evil, and you present us with this thing called the incarnation of God, in which Messiah dies? A dead Messiah made about as much sense to them as dry water. It was a contradiction of terms. Besides that, Paul said, the teachers of the law tell me I'm foolish because when Messiah comes, he will come with miraculous events. Oh, before we get all critical, historically, of those who criticize Paul, why wouldn't they expect that? After all, Moses, who wasn't Messiah, just said, water, be gone. And the Red Sea parted. Joshua, who wasn't Messiah, said, we're going to circle these walls of Jericho, not unlike the walls of Troy, and we're going to blow trumpets, and then God's going to make them fall down. And he did. In the tradition of the Jewish teachers, they had grand, grandiose miracles. Why wouldn't they expect that from Messiah? Actually, Messiah did some stuff like that. It just really wasn't well received. The Messiah of God, Jesus, he actually touched people and healed them. The Messiah of God, Jesus, he actually wept, was overcome 
with human emotion at the tomb of Lazarus and then said, Lazarus, come out of there. And he raised the dead. What more do you need? It's not what more do you need. According to the teachers of the law, Paul would say, it's just one thing. That's a roadblock, a stumbling block, that God should come in the flesh and die. That's purely ridiculous. So that's what Paul's up against. And then he says, I want to tell you something in spite of the fact that that's what I'm up against. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. And the weakness of God in Jesus Christ is more powerful than anything on the planet. That's what I want to remind you of, Corinthians. And I also want to remind you that you're in a world that goes the exact opposite way of you many times. You're in a world that has worldly wisdom, and I'm calling you to a different kind of wisdom. I'm not calling you to attack the world. Just calling you to a different way of life. So what is the wisdom of the world? Back then and now, I'll just kind of mix it all up and give you what I see as, among other things, the nuggets of wisdom in the world. One nugget of wisdom in the world is that we're a meaningless collection of molecules who just kind of emerged out of, let's call it the primordial slime. And because we are, the only meaning that there is in this life is the meaning we create. So it makes sense. It's up to you to create your own meaning. Make the best of it. Be the master of your own fate. And above all else, take care of number one. Because really that's all you've got. Or how about this wisdom of the world? The wisdom that says that power and fame and money are in and of themselves worthy of pursuit. All by themselves, they're worthy. Or how about this? That the rich, they are either successful because they're smart or maybe both and because God has blessed them. You know, that was a big stumbling block, by the way, for the disciples. Because on one occasion, Jesus teaching, he said, you know what, it's harder for a rich man to go into the kingdom of God, to get in. It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to enter the eye of a needle. And they said, what? Not just because of the impossible nature of a camel entering the eye of a needle, but because they believed that the evidence of God's blessing on the rich is that they're rich.
number of years ago, I had the most awkward experience of my entire ministry. It wasn't here. It was in Africa. I had been asked to teach at a pastor's conference for a week, all day long. And I chose the Gospel of John. And every day, I taught pastors who had very little education. 99% of them walked 10, 20, 30, 50 miles to get there that week. And I was humbled by the fact that they sit there and listened to me, a rich white American, talk about the gospel and the grace of God. And on one occasion, as I talked, and then we had Q&A, one of the pastors raised his hand. And he said, Brother Bob, he said, pray for us here in Ghana. Because we're poor. And we have so little. And you in America are so wealthy. Because God has blessed you. Two things. One didn't happen because I controlled myself. The other one did. The first thing I wanted to do was kneel down in their presence and cry. But I didn't. The second thing I wanted to do was to say something, and I did. I said, my brothers, I love you, but you've got it wrong. In your poverty, God has made you rich. In this place, he's pouring out his spirit upon you, and in my home, We've got everything, and we don't need God. No, you pray for us. And I have never thought twice about whether or not my message was correct or not. It is correct. White. American evangelicals. We don't need God. We've got it all. Brothers, please pray for us. Oh, by the way, I um, had a conversation with the leader of that organization, David Mensa, just this Saturday. David is a Ghanaian himself, 
who returned to work on agricultural development in his country and to relieve his people from poverty and also to share the good news. He told me on Saturday, Bob, I asked him how things were going. He said, Bob, they're going so well. So we have so many people coming to faith in Jesus that we got together as a team and we said, we got to have to put a hold on evangelism for a while because we don't have time to keep up with discipleship. They're coming so fast. They can hardly count them. Please, my brothers, you pray for us. The poor are not disenfranchised, second-class citizens in the gospel. They're at the heart of Jesus. Oh, one other thing. Let me get a little bit more controversial with you. The wisdom of the world says that any sexual expression of any sort between consenting adults, not kids, is healthy and proper. The wisdom of the world. So what's the wisdom of God? The wisdom of God is every single human being. Every single human being. Even the ones you pass on Kirkwood is created in the image of God. Every one of those human beings, despite race, ethnicity, or poverty, or creed, is created in the image of God. And every one of them is a person for whom Christ loved so much that he died to give them eternal life. That's the wisdom of God. Do you know how ridiculous that sounded to Paul's audience? Here's another part of the wisdom of God. For that reason, every person's life is important, no matter what their status. Here's another part of the wisdom of God. Wealth and fame and power, they might seem like the blessings of God, but you know what they really are? They're potential tools of Satan to destroy your soul. That's what Jesus said. That's what Paul said. The wisdom of God is that sexuality is more than self-expression and pleasure. It was created to be enjoyed as an act of worship between a husband and wife. 
and it reflects the image of God. Okay, before I go on and pontificate any longer, you've heard enough from me. Just let me repeat some words from the Gospels about the wisdom of God, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor or the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are meek, because they're going to inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who are ravishing for righteousness, because they're going to be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called the children of God. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake because yours is the kingdom of heaven. There's a long list of people behind you that have been persecuted. Count yourself worthy to be persecuted for Christ. I wish I could take that message with a loudspeaker to Wall Street or to both houses of Congress or to the White House and see if I could get an amen. I suspect if I did, it would be for one reason and one reason only, to coddle their constituents. This series we're in is called Living Right Side Up. So the question is, do you want to live right side up? Here's the way to go about it. Embrace the wisdom of the cross. It might seem like upside down, but it's right side up. Here's what you do with the wisdom of the cross. You don't go around condemning other people. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came that the world through me might be saved. The world's doing a fine job of condemning itself. They don't need me to condemn it. There's something else that you need to embrace, and and that's this reality. You don't have to have all the answers to exercise the power of the cross. You just need the one message. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't. None of us do. If you want to embrace the wisdom of the cross and live right side up, here's another Reality check. You might feel really foolish sometimes because everybody around you thinks you're a fool. If you want to live right side up, you must, must embrace a different set of beliefs and values than the world around you. You need to believe in and rely on constantly the grace of God because you're not good enough. You need to invest in eternal things. Like me, you probably don't feel rich. But compared to 90% of the rest of the world, you're wealthy. So what do you do with your wealth? Well, according to Jesus, it looks something like this. When you look at your budget, when you look at your income, you say, how much of this 
Can I give away? Any of you plan your budget like that? Investing in eternal things? If you want to live the wisdom of the cross, you have to live the humble life of Jesus. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be hung on to, but made himself nothing. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and was obedient to death, even death on the cross. Paul says in Philippians, that is living right side up. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the difficulty of your truth. We thank you for the way it rocks our sensibilities and reconstructs our reality if we embrace it. We thank you for the way it transforms us from the inside out. We thank you for the way in which it gives us joy that we could never experience on our own. And we thank you that it is truly the best news in all of human history. We are privileged to have heard it. Now make us stewards of it and followers of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.